Good morning. God is good, and the rain has refreshed the grounds, and the trees are clapping their hands. It is good to be here. Uh, Genesis 25, the first 18 chapters, so open your Bible to Genesis 25. And while you're getting there, I'll give you just a recap of some things from the last chapter. In chapter 24 of Genesis, we saw how Abraham was concerned that his son Isaac was to get a wife from Abraham's clan and not from the heathen clans in Canaan, which is the land of promise, but God's people hadn't conquered it yet. The father wanted his family to continue in a way laid out by God. The title of my lesson is The Family. And it's important that we see what God has laid out in Scripture that reflects and defines the family. Abraham had a grasp on this. He wanted his family to continue. He had been given the promise. And he wanted his family to follow after God's plan so that there would be honor amongst his people. So he had this faithful servant who served honorably. And he went and got Rebekah from Abraham's clan, brought her back, and they became one flesh. Last week, Aaron mentioned that we were seeing the beginning of a transition in the patriarchy of the clan of Abraham as Isaac was emerging as the one to carry on the promise given to Abraham and to Isaac. The servant of Abraham called Isaac his master, this being a clue that Aaron brought out. Another clue that's in the last verse of chapter 24 Isaac took Rebekah into the tent of his mother, Sarah. That's where they began their marriage. It's significant because it indicates that a new matriarch has been established among them. Isaac is the new master. Rebekah, the new first lady, if you will. The transition is taking form around this newly formed family of Isaac and Rebekah. In chapter 25, we're going to see this transition fulfilled as Abraham departs from the scene and Isaac picks up the mantle to carry the promise as God has commanded. So I'm going to look at this in about three different passages in these first 18 verses. And first off, In the first six verses, I want to look at Abraham's other wife and sons. So Genesis 25, 1 through 6. Abraham took a wife, and her name was Keturah. And she bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan begat Sheba and Dedan, or Dedan. And the sons of Dedan were Ashuram, Ledasim, and Leomenin, and the sons of Midian were Ephath, Ephor, Hanok, Abadai, and Eldah. All these were the children of Keturah. And Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. But Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines, which Abraham had. And while he was still living, he sent them eastward, away from Isaac his son, to the country of the east. Now, you recall 
from the, the timing that's been given to us in the Bible that three years has passed since Sarah died. Isaac has gotten married. Abraham takes another wife. He's only 140 years old, still in the prime of his life. Right? He knows that he's to produce many offspring because God has promised him as many offspring as there are sands in the sea. Keturah likely was a maid from Abraham's clan. She's called a concubine in verse 6 of our chapter. And she's referred to as a concubine in 1 Chronicles 1 verse 32. She's also called a wife in verse 1 of our passage here. Now, we have two generations, children and grandchildren, indicating the passage of several years. Maybe 30 years has gone by in the production of these 16 children that we read. There are some theologians who think that Abraham took Keturah long before Isaac's wedding. And these children were spread out over the decades leading up to what we read in chapter 25. And many who take this view say it's because she's referred to as a concubine. And as he took Hagar as a concubine, Sarah gave him to gave her to him as a wife. He took her as a concubine, so he took this woman. That's what they say. Now, we'll get into a word study here because... Somebody amongst us likes word studies. Um, the word for wife that we see in Genesis is from a Hebrew word, isha. And the, it's the feminine sense of the word for man, which is ish. And it's primarily used to refer to a woman as a wife. In Strong's Concordance, Isha has a primary meaning of, quote, the procreational female of the species. Now, I would say that as an aside, our culture would benefit if they studied Strong's concordance on this word, because he knew what a woman was. It's the, it's the female species of the feces that procreates, right? It's the one who bears children. But the word is used for wife nearly 300 times in the Old Testament. That's the standard way it comes across in English. The word for concubine, on the other hand, is not ambiguous. It means only one thing. A woman who is taken to serve as a wife who's not really a wife. The bottom line of all this, I think that Abraham took Keturah as a concubine after Isaac's wedding. And I think that she had these six children and ten grandchildren during the decades remaining in Abraham's life. I don't think it mean, makes a world of difference, but I do think that what we see in this paragraph shows us that Isaac, who was the only child given Abraham from Sarah, is handled completely different from the children of the concubines. Abraham gives gifts to the sons of the concubines uh, from the sons of the concubines that he had. Hagar and Keturah. These two women gave him sons. 
but he gave everything to Isaac. That's what the text says, the last verse, or the uh, verse 5 rather. Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. Now, if Keturah was Abraham's wife, the children that she bore him would have received some level of inheritance. It was common in that ancient culture that the firstborn would get half of the inheritance and the other sons that came after him would get whatever the other half distributed among them. He gave everything to Isaac. He gave gifts. We don't know what the gifts were. Not an inheritance per se, because he gave all that to Isaac. But he took care of these other sons and gave Isaac everything. This tells me that he is the only born son, the only son born to a true wife, the child of promise. Now note that before he died, Abraham sent away from Isaac all the sons born to his concubines. The child of promise was to be separate from the children of flesh so that they wouldn't make trouble for him and for his clan, maybe clamoring for some of that inheritance that they didn't get because Isaac was was a wealthy man because Abraham was very wealthy and he gave all to Isaac. I see this separation of the children of flesh from the children of promise as a foreshadowing of arguments used by John and Paul to warn the Jews against trusting in being descendants of Abraham according to the flesh. All of these children of the flesh, they were sent away. Children of the promise, the child of the promise in this case, held close and given everything. The only one who inherits the promise are those spiritually born from above as children of Abraham. Now, in our day, we've got brothers and sisters in Christ who think that if mom and dad are both Christians, or even if only one's a Christian, they have a child, that child is in the covenant and has special standing before God. Does that sound familiar to you all? Is that not the reasoning that the Jews rested in their fleshly lineage to Abraham? We have Abraham as our father. We have no need of being set free. Our children are clean. What do you mean? Because we're children of Abraham. But clearly, being a natural child of Abraham, even in Abraham's day, was not what it took to be a partaker of the inheritance. This paragraph reinforces the family unit, which is the first and primary agency of government among mankind. God has given mankind three forms of government, and there's influence and overlap, but distinctives between them all. You get the family, which is the first and the most foundational. You get the local assembly of saints, community Baptist being our example of that. And then you have the civil or state governments. And they're separate but they have interaction and they have influence on one another. This will be important further on in the lesson. Sarah was the wife Abraham was intended to have. And there's been good counsel over the years. People want to know, who should I marry? Did I marry the right one? Well, the, the godly answer to the question, did I marry the right one, is you're married to her, aren't you? 
That's the right one. There's not. Don't wear yourself out, young men, young ladies, looking for the one person in the world God wants you to marry. Look for a godly spouse that you're compatible with and get married and have children. And that's the one that you should be married to. So, that's the one that, that Abraham was supposed to have. It was God's plan. The, the ancient culture, agricultural cultures, up until the Industrial Revolution, put a lot of stock in having large families, right? you got to have men to haul in the crops and manage the livestock. It takes work, doesn't it, brother? Yet, Abraham and Sarah just had the one child. They were married a a hundred years, maybe a hundred and ten years, had one, came late in life, didn't have any others. Yet, through Abraham, through this one child, there would be people as numerous as the stars in the heavens and the sands on the sea. This is the family from which God would bring His Son. The one that all inheritance would be given to. And the one that... You don't share any inheritance unless you're a child of promise. Contrast this with a worldly view of the family. Karl Marx, the father of communism, he asserted that children belong to the state. His goal was to displace the family because if you entrust the family with raising kids, they might teach them things that go contrary to the state. That's why in communist China... Legally, you can only own a Bible if it's published by the government. They have this thing called the Three Self Church. They edit the Bible that they publish to eliminate references to a king that's above all kings because there can be no king above the ruler and the leader of the Communist Party. Natural man cannot tolerate what God has set in motion. So... The communist wants to displace the family and put the state between parents and children. We have a we have a government school system that calls itself parentalocus. I can't get the Latin straight. It means local parent. When you hand your kid off to the government school, they become the local parent. You got to be careful when you let somebody take your place raising your kids. This is the basis behind phrases such as it takes a village to raise a child. We heard that a lot about ten years ago. These people, this whole view is determined to destroy the family unit and establish the state as the authority. And this is the current threat that replaces the state church. The state church is passe because it's religious and God-focused. Our post-religious culture doesn't want a state church. We want a state government that acts like the authority. As with most lies, there's a grain of truth. We need each other. We need each other. There are times where we need somebody to step in in and help us raising our kids, teaching our kids, doing whatever else needs done because we are all weak and limited individuals. And God has put us together to function Much like a body. This basic family unit cannot be violated by us. 
we may disagree with how you're, I may disagree with how you're raising your kids. It's like Joan and I with our children. We may have differences of opinion on how our son or daughter ought to be raising their children, but we ain't the mom and dad of those grandbabies. And we, likewise, concerned but not replacing or shoving away parents within this body as we try to help one another. That's the way the world does it, not the way we're supposed to do it. So let's go back to our passage and look at verses 8 through 13. Well, I guess we'll look at 7 through 13 since we stopped at verse 6 previously. This is the sum of the years of Abraham's life, which he lived 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years and was gathered to his people. And his son, his sons, Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth. There Abraham was buried and Sarah, his wife. And it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son, Isaac, and Isaac dwelt at Beer Lahoi Roy. Now, this, I think I wanted to stop there. I got my notes messed up, but I think I want to stop there right now. Abraham's death. Abraham lived 35 years after Sarah died. Sarah lived to be 137 years old. Abraham's 10 years older than she is. So, he's now dead. 175 years old, about twice as long as you and I can be expected to live. He was described as being, he died old and content. I I want to die old and content. I want to die content knowing that I've served God, that my family can honestly look at me and say, he was an imperfect man, but he desired to serve God and family. Content in knowing I'm approved by my family and approved by my God. Ought to be our goal. The key is contentment in Christ. Are you content being a child of promise? We sang some hymns this morning about how trials come and illness comes and, oh, we suffer this way and that way, but what's the answer in all those hymns to all these troubles that we experience? There is a God who keeps his promises, that has promised. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I will come back and take you to be where I am. He will keep us, whether we live or die, until he comes again. This Abraham rejoiced to see Christ in his day. The Jews didn't understand this. If you're in Christ, you should understand this. Paul had learned to be content no matter what his circumstances because he based his reconciliation to God by faith in Christ as the basis for his peace and contentment. If I have peace with God, you can read about the judgment of God all throughout Scripture. You have peace with Him and you're not going to suffer this judgment? How could you not be content 
and at peace because of the one who has reconciled you to Almighty God. This peace that surpasses all the world can offer, which nothing, the world can give nothing but temporary circumstantial distraction from the conflict that consumes it. Now, when the, you watch television, you listen to commercials, you see advertising, and they're, they're promising you relief from pain. They're promising you relief from all kinds of stuff that your body goes through as it, as it ages. It's almost as if Ponce de Leon and his fountain of eternal youth is being repackaged and held out to us, but not quite within our grasp. It's illusionary. That's what the world offers you. It's in contrast to that which they cannot see or get their hand on. That is sure and eternal. Paul said, you know this passage from Philippians 4, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, all things. I can be content whether I've got a bunch. Not wrong to have a bunch. Or whether I have not much at all. Little. It's not sinful to be poor. See, these don't, these conditions it's not sinful to be an American. A middle class American is rich in the world. Rich in history. Not sinful to be here. God put us here. What determines whether we live sinful lives or not is not what you have, but what do you do with what you have? What is your motive in getting what you have? Are you seeking to be a good steward of what God's given you? Do you trust the giver and value the giver more than the gift? These are the things that we have to wrestle with to be at peace with where we are. There is no peace with God, no contentment in the face of conflict apart from union with Christ. Moses said that Abraham was gathered to his people. And then he gives us details about what that meant. It's a comforting phrase to reinforce the family. Moses was buried in the same cave on the field that Abraham bought from the Hittites that Sarah was buried in. And so, man and woman come out of the mass of humanity of Genesis 12. They got married. They went through all kinds of life that we've discussed already. And they die 10 years or 30 years apart, rather. And they get buried together. There's a sweet picture of that. That, that presents a sweet picture to us of the union of a man and a wife. Ron Crisp said, This does not refer to burial but to the immortality of the soul being gathered to his people. We are gathered to our people at death. The better picture than bones being buried together, the better picture of being gathered to your people is do you have people that have gone before and are in heaven with God and have that peace where the flesh doesn't get in the way anymore, those people are who we are gathered to. Every funeral of a saint must have this focus, this better place that many people talk about. They often don't define it. 
Right? He's gone to a better place. What place is that? Uh, Those who don't know Christ haven't gone to a better place. But those who do know Christ, oh, it's a far better place that they've gone to. It's not simply being finished with temporal life. It's being finished with all of the distractions and the sin that so easily entangle us in temporal life. And having that unfettered, untarnished peace with God where we can praise Him with unsinning heart. Abraham's bones were laid with Sarah's bones, honoring that marriage in this deliberate symbol of unity. And after Abraham was buried with his wife, Yahweh blessed Isaac. And it came to pass after the death of Abraham, verse 11, that God blessed his son Isaac. This demonstrates that God was with him and would be with him as he had been with Abraham. Now, as you go through Scripture, you'll see what is now called the patriarchs of the faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all given the promise. I want to give you a brief comparison of the promise given to these three men. In Abraham, nations would be blessed, Genesis 12. In Isaac, nations would be blessed, Genesis 26. In Jacob, nations would be blessed, that's Genesis 28. In Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, you see that descendants would be as the stars of the sky and as the dust of the earth. And that's in Genesis 15, 26, and 28. And you see that the promise was to his seed, to Abraham's seed in Genesis 12, Galatians 3, Isaac's seed in Genesis 26, and Jacob's seed, Genesis 28. They all have pretty much the same promise with one exception. In Genesis 17, Abraham is called the father of many nations, and neither Isaac nor Jacob is ever called the father of many nations. Abraham stands as the father. Jews, Arabs, and all the redeemed. We see continuity in the essentials of the promise amongst these three patriarchs. Each of them was heir to the same promise seen in uh, Hebrews 11.9. Each of them knew what God had promised was better than the picture of the promise seen in Canaan. You see, they, they were not looking for a land that was in dirt because in Hebrews, the author says they could have gone back if they wanted to. But they were looking for something better. See, this better place... Is that spiritual kingdom, the, the city whose builder and maker is God. That's the only place you can have peace. And that's the only land worth having. And their descendants were as numerous as promised they would be. And that's in verse 12 of, of uh, Hebrews 11. And God counted their heirs according to promise. Counted all of their heirs according to promise. And see, this is the key. You don't get to union with Christ by law. You get to union with Christ by promise. Because law says do this. Promise says I will do. And what God promises, God does. 
And peace with God comes by being united with him because you have been made a child of promise. Being a child of Abraham, according to the flesh, doesn't give you that. This promise is being worked out in time through the lives of many people. And this is God who works these things out. There's no chance in play. There's no happenstance that takes place. There's only the sovereign hand of providence guiding people and events to bring about his decree. Those who know him sometimes have trouble understanding this because we try to figure it all out and we cannot. But we who are known by him should embrace his hand of providence, knowing that the peace that comes from knowing the one who created all, sustains all, and judges all. If you have peace with him, what can man do? He can only kill the body. Fear him who can not only kill you, but cast body and soul into hell. Fear him and have peace with him, because you need not fear men who can do nothing to you. Ishmael shows up for his father's burial. We, we haven't heard of Ishmael since he was circumcised in chapter 17. There's nothing like a funeral to bring people together. Folks, we need to cherish our family while they yet live, even those who are apart from Christ, because we don't know how many days any of us has. And once somebody that you love dies... You can't, in the flesh, in the way we experience things, you can't love them anymore. You can talk about them in sentimental ways, but your time for having an impact on their life has passed. We don't know whether the Lord will call any of our loved ones, but it's not our place to give up in praying for and speaking peace in Christ to them. We're told to not grow weary in well-doing, and there's nothing more pleasing to the Father than being obedient and doing what He's commanded us. Preach the gospel to every creature. Isaac lived near Bir Lahoi Roy, which is what Gil says close to where Ishmael lived between Kadesh and Bered, which we saw in Genesis 16. These brothers who had much between them due to the shenanigans of their parents apparently lived at some level of peace fairly close together. Paul touches on this in Romans chapter 12. I want to read a couple of verses there from Romans chapter 12, uh, verses 14 and following, because this is relevant to what we see in Ishmael's life. Romans 12, starting in 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another. Don't set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for the good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Ishmael was called a wild donkey of a man who lived at odds with everyone else. That was chapter 16 and verse 12. That was God's prophecy of who he would be. 
And yet Isaac was able to live fairly close to him without being at war. And what Paul lays out for us in Romans 12 is, with the Holy Spirit's help, within our grasp. We don't have to be at war with those people that we're not united to by faith. Let's look at the last section of our chapter. Verses 12 through 18. Now, this is the genealogy of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's maidservant, bore to Abraham. And these were the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names, according to their generations. The firstborn of Ishmael, Nebajoth, then Keter, Abbeel, Mibsham, and Mishnan, Duman, Masa, Hadar, Timad, Jatur, Nafish, and Kedimah. These were the sons of Ishmael, and these were their names by their towns and their settlements, twelve princes according to their nations. These were the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years, and he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They dwelt from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt, as you go towards Assyria. He died in the presence of all his brethren. Now, in this chapter, we're given specific details about Keturah's offspring and Ishmael's offspring. These lines are not in the godly line, but they are a vital part of fulfilling the promise made to Abraham, who would be the father of many nations. There are elect ones in every tribe, including those descendants of Hagar, Ishmael, and Keturah. This is God's promise from every tongue, nation, and tribe. He will raise up children for his glory. Our charge is to pray for and proclaim the gospel to everybody that we come in contact, not knowing whom God has chosen. Ishmael lived 137 years and he was gathered to his people. I wouldn't say that that Ishmael was gathered to his people in the same way that Abraham was gathered to his people. Because we don't know anything in Scripture that tells us Ishmael was a child of promise. So the people he was gathered to was his earthly people. It was a physical gathering for Ishmael. His clan settled near Egypt along the main route to Assyria. So it was on a main traveling path. He died before or in the presence of his people, his clan. This is kind of a uh, a position of esteem being well thought of as when uh, Job would go to the city gates and be before the people. Ishmael was a patriarch established by God to be the father of 12 tribes. We won't turn there, but in Genesis 17 and in Genesis 16, we see that God promised Abraham. Because remember, Abraham wanted God to bless Ishmael because he didn't quite trust him to bring up that child that he said he would. So use Ishmael. And God said, no, I ain't going to do it, but I'll make him the father of 12 princes. And he'll be a mighty man and he'll be at war with everybody. That's what you find back there. It was God who blessed him and made him the father of 12 princes. It was God who said he would live before, live in the presence of his clan. That's one of the promises that God made to Abraham, that he would be the father of 12 princes and he would live. He would be ever before and with his people at war with the world around him. But with his people, he would be with them. 
Ishmael would have some sort of temporal peace and prosperity because God said he would. I don't want to pass by that rabbit trail. Um, First Corinthians seven, thirteen and fourteen is a passage about an unbelieving spouse being sanctified or made holy by the believing spouse, and the child is made holy by being with them in marriage. Now, the point I want to draw from this, without going into a discourse on how Presbyterians interpret that passage, is that it shows God's concern for marriage, for family. A child that's born and raised up in a marriage, even if only one of them is a believer, is in a much better position than a child who's not raised up in a marriage. That's the point. Being set apart, being sanctified, all these words in English come from the same Greek root word. Doesn't mean salvation. But it conveys the idea that marriage is a holy covenant ordained by God and being in that covenant is better than living lawlessly apart from marriage. Better for the couple, better for the child. And this shows us why, or that rather, that being married is a, is an ordained state that God has established for man. We don't get to redefine marriage. All of this is part of God's revelation that shows the importance of marriage, of family, as the center of society. So I want to conclude here before I run out of time. Natural man is adrift in his culture. He's trying to relate what he can know of God by making gods he can comprehend. This is what Paul ran into on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17. Man doesn't get here by accident. The places and times in which we live are not happenstance. God told those pagans in, in uh, what we call Greece that God establishes the places and times of man's habitation. I did... Joan and I didn't move to South Texas by happenstance, by accident. We didn't join Community Baptist by happenstance. God puts people where it pleases Him. Man, natural man is not atheistic, but theistic. He worships what he has made or imagined, and he sometimes admits that he doesn't know everything, but he will worship. And it's made clear here that our buildings in uh, Acts chapter 17, the buildings are the important thing in our worship of God. They're not the important things. Pagans attach significance to the buildings they worship in. We have rain shelters. We have comfortable places to sit so we're not distracted by the elements from what we do when we gather here. It's nice to have a comfortable building to set in. The one we worship is the significant one that's here. Marriage, as I've said, is the fundamental building block to society established by God. And it brings untold blessings from God to those who honor it, even if they don't know God. 
Marriage is honorable amongst all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Marriage is a good thing even for people who do not know God. This is why we cannot go meekly along with the current attack on marriage by our culture. Man can't redefine marriage because God has established it. Man brings judgment on himself when he tries, when he opposes God. We need to cherish marriage, even if your spouse is unbelieving, because God is glorified when couples love one another and provide a properly nourishing environment for children. We have to trust God. Abraham trusted God. Isaac trusted God. We have to trust God. In Grant Goldsworthy's book, The Gospel and Wisdom, he reviews the book of Job, and he provides insight to the speech of Job's three friends, and then he says this, Here is another piece of true wisdom in which the search for an understanding of God's ways refuses all trite answers which suggest that either we can know it all or we can know nothing. It's not all or nothing. We see in part, we know in part. A little later he says, If the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom... It can no sense, it can in no sense be merely a supplemental boost to common wisdom. Hmm? Unregenerate man can be wise in a lot of ways. Be doctors, scientists, astronauts, plumbers, mechanics. A lot of earthly wisdom that God gives, just like He gave back in the old days. God's wisdom isn't added to that. God's wisdom is different in character and nature altogether. That's what Goldsworthy's point is. Natural man will twist and turn what he can see of God in order to block God from his darkened mind. Here's an example. The May 1st, 2023 edition of Scientific American published an article titled, Here's Why Human Sex is Not Binary. That's the name of the article. The author alludes to some worms and some fish and a lizard or two that are not strictly binary. And he concludes that even though he hasn't found any mammal that's not binary, humans are not binary. The author wrote, Gametes and gamete production in physiology by themselves are only a part of the entirety of human lives, unquote. And he says, he adds, Plentiful data and analysis supports the assertion that sex is very complex in humans and that binary and simplistic explanations for human sex biology are either wholly incorrect or substantially incomplete. And it goes on to to, to define or describe sex for humans as dynamic, biological, cultural, and enmeshed in feedback cycles with our environments, ecologies, and multiple physiological and social processes. Did you know that whether you're a male or female is is subject to all that nonsense? See, this, this is what natural man does when he tries to wrestle against God. No fear of God in this man's eyes. No true wisdom. Only the futile attempt to suppress his knowledge of the truth. We can't do that, brothers and sisters. We have to submit to what he has told us in his word as the bedrock of all wisdom. We trust him because of his character, because he's promised and demonstrated that he is good to his own. We sing that hymn, Trust and Obey. 
It instructs us that there's no other way to be content, to be happy, to be at peace with God unless we trust and obey. Now, I know this from my years as a false convert. Professed trust without obedience is a sure path to despair. You don't have peace with God if you don't believe in him. You can do all you can muster up all the obedience within your little body and it will wear you out. And you will have the despair that you read in the lives of people like Martin Luther and others who tried to discipline themselves and work out of themselves all sin so they could become righteous before God. And it drove them to despair. And in Martin Luther's case and in many other people's cases, they came to the point where they understood that the just must live by faith. There's a. If you if you are deceived and in despair, you have to look for Jesus. You have to look unto Jesus. There's a hymn. I'm going to give you two verses of it. It says, let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly, fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. This he gives you. Tis the spirit's rising beam. The very ability to feel your need for Jesus is something that he gives to you. Lo, the incarnate God ascended. Please the merit of his blood. Venture on him. Venture wholly. Let no other truth trust intrude. None but Jesus can do helpless sinners good. Only trust him. Let no other trust intrude. Jesus only, Jesus only can do helpless sinners good. You can trust him. Dare not trust yourself. Child of promise, beloved of God, trust Jesus. Child of wrath, not knowing him, look unto Jesus and be saved. Because Jesus really does. Save sinners. That is why He came. Let's pray.